Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're hearing each other. Well, I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. How is Faith? She just takes care of me now. That's a big job. <laughs> it takes at least a full-time person. I bet it does. <laughs> <laughs> tell me what you're. Yeah, tell me what you're up to. Really fun, but this yeah, yeah. I'm in one of the assignments is interviewing a church planter or a missionary, and mm-hmm. you came to my mind first. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who else could there be? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a lot of experience, uh-huh. so. How long were you serving and where exactly did you serve? To say how long maybe take some background. Uh, Faith, as you know, grew up in Japan. Yes. And her brother was there as a missionary. And so the first time we went over, we did a one-year period during the time that her brother was on furlough. And so we spent a year in southern Japan, the southern island is Kyushu, and then the southern prefecture is Kagoshima. And so we worked in Kagoshima for a year. Then I came back, actually, and did a degree in linguistics. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I did not know that. I would have been calling you. (laughs) Oh, no, I'm glad you didn't. (laughs) I, John and I were like, who do we know that knows linguistics that I could... That's hilarious. Well, I know enough about linguistics to know how somebody, I understand it can be uh, quite overwhelming. The problem I had were with the agglutinating languages and trying to do like morphemes and analysis on the languages. I don't feel like they provided great data to be able to do that, especially when I didn't really know what I was doing. So I think it would have made a difference if I truly would have had an intro class and then was given that. I think I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't have made a difference, but it would have made me feel better. It could have been a lot of fun, you know, to just have a, a undergraduate introduction. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, to do the technical details of it, I'm sure was a bit much. So yeah, I came back. We came back. I finished. Uh, I actually finished a Master of Divinity. I just had a few classes left on that and then did the degree in linguistics. Then we returned to Japan and we were there from 1984. Faith actually stayed a year longer. She was there to 2006 and I was there from to, to 2005. And that was in a city north of Tokyo called Scuba. It was kind of an unusual place because it, you know, most cities in Japan are real old and, but this city was actually started in the post-war period. It was a, a city the government planned. And so it was called Scuba Science City. It was a research city, government research. There were about 50 government research institutes, and there was about 150 private institutes. Mm-hmm. I was self-supporting. We worked with a church, uh, actually the non-instrumental group, but a non-instrumental church. 
in a neighboring town of Tsuchiota. And we were there for 20, 21 years. So was Joelle born there? All the children were born there. Oh, wow. Joelle and Zachary were born in Scuba. Uh, we lived in Scuba, but we were kind of nervous. We took uh, we went into Tokyo mm -hmm. when Aaron was born to a major hospital. But we got better at having children and became more confident. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so we did it. At, actually, we found a really good doctor there locally. So what drew you to go there? Was it Faith's brother being there, or did you all always want to serve overseas? Yeah, I grew up thinking that I would like to do some form of evangelism. We tried it for a year. It seemed like something that we could do. It was certainly helped that her father was there, that her brother was there. We had the experience of being on the, the field there. And you kind of see the need, you know, in Japan, there's a very small percentage of the population are Christian, so it's less than 1%. That comes with things can be kind of dark for a lot of people in Japan. On, on the surface, this doesn't seem true, but when you're there for a little while, you realize that people are, their lives are fairly fragile. Yeah, we just saw the need and... Uh, saw it was something that we might be able to do and uh, did it for a year and decided to go back. So when you said you were self-supporting, did you have a job in scuba or is that when you commuted on the train? Yeah, I did several things. So when we first went over, one of the reasons we ended up in scuba a place that hired us, you know, which is kind of unusual to get hired overseas. It was a high school in scuba and it was a um, junior high high school that was a new school that to get understand you know there's a kind of unusual situation in japan with children that have lived overseas and returned and so there is the idea that if they live overseas they're going to have to be enculturated once again into Japanese society. And so there's a, a special name for these children. They're Kikoku Shijo or Kaigaise. In other words, it's a kind of strange category. I don't know of any other country in the world that has this sort of system, maybe North Korea or someplace. It gives you an idea at least of the apparent closedness of Japan. Just the idea, oh, the kids lived overseas, now we gotta we gotta reenculturate them. And so this high school was set up to specifically receive these children who had lived overseas. Usually it was an English speaking country, but many of the children were not only bilingual, many of them had a third language, you know, that they, they may have been trilingual or more which begins to give you the idea that the the first brush with this story isn't exactly true. That is, it might seem, oh, these children are disadvantaged children. Mm. But you got to think a minute, what kind of families are likely to have lived overseas and do overseas work and return to Japan? Well-off families. They're well-off families. 
they're the cultural elites. And that's precisely what was taking place. These were children of, you know, originally it was diplomats, and but then eventually uh, people that, re in, in the case of Scuba, many of them were research scientists, the children of scientists or, you know, various kinds of doctors. This is the other part of this thing that Scuba University is there also in Scuba, and it is a national, it's a prestigious national university. Mm -hmm. And the one group of children in Japan that can get into university without taking the entrance examination are the children that have lived overseas. In other words, a Kikoku Shijo, or, they had direct entry into the university. This was true of many universities, many elite universities in Japan. So we we did that. Faith and I both taught there while we worked with this church in uh, Tsuchiyoto. So did Faith's brother and father follow like a um, church planning like movement per se, or like some kind of system that they had learned about in the United States and then tried to apply there? Or did they come up with their own type of like evangelism and a method of evangelism? Yeah, I think her, her father, you know, went over specifically to plant churches. He planted seven churches all over Kagoshima and even on the island Tanigashima, which is south of Kyushu. For each of these churches, he, over the years, raised up preachers to fill in those churches. And what he discovered, you know, he tried different things. So you might think, oh, property and buildings are so expensive in Japan, we'll just meet in homes. And he tried that. What he soon discovered is that Japanese, first of all, Japanese houses, they're, they're, they're so small and so crowded. Most Japanese, you know, in, in, a, in the United States, we just freely invite people in. And, but they Japanese don't do that so much. Uh, and so having people in your house proved to be unworkable. So he okay. tried that for a while and then discovered that he, they really needed to build physical church buildings or some place that they could meet. And so he began building buildings. Actually, a lot of the buildings they used, you know, he was a chaplain in World War II, and I don't know if he still had military connections, but they had these military buildings that were available. And he bought those, you know, kind of prefabricated buildings. Was he self-supporting as well, or was he sent by an agency? This is the thing, Katie. I always think that uh, in the Christian churches and the churches of Christ, a, a distinct part of this history has to do with missions and missionary movements. Yeah. And I sometimes wonder if that got communicated to students and I'm blaming myself, it may have been my own students. It is, I th there is a, a clear history there. I mean, I don't mean to disparage the institution that you once attended, but it was never clear to me that people at that institution, or in fact, many of our schools, it's almost like they don't know this history anymore. I don't think they do, but I think they realize that the Christian churches and churches of Christ are, well, especially the schools, because you look at each of the schools and they have some sort of like program to 
train you on how to be a missionary. But I don't think, like, I've not learned any of the history of, except for maybe in restoration history, I learned a little bit about it. But like the most I've learned at Johnson, at least, is about William Carey, the father of modern missions. And beyond that, there's not a lot of history being taught. I, I think this is a huge mi- missing piece. First of all, because the one of the key issues between the disciples of Christ and the Christian churches and the split was over the role of missionary organizations. Mm-hmm. And so, particularly as it unfolded in the Philippines, in the Philippines, the, the disciples, I don't know if you're familiar with the disciples of Christ, but of the denominations, they may be one of the most liberal. Yes. Uh, and so this showed forth particularly in missions and missionary organizations, mm-hmm. that the missionary organizations became a point of power for many people. They would control and organize. So one of the key mission fields, the key histories actually, in addition to the Philippines, is what took place in Japan. And in Japan, a man named Cunningham, he applied, he went through the mission organization, and he was going to go to Japan as a missionary, and they were going to send him out. One of the missionary organizations. Yes, it was the CMF, Christian Missionary Fellowship, I think. That was the key organization, even before there was a split. But Cunningham contracted polio, and his arm was withered. He couldn't use one of his arms. And so the CMF, their policy was that you could not be physically handicapped. And so they refused. They said, well, you can't be a missionary then. Cunningham began, not that he was the first, but uh, his effort was key in that he became what we would call an independent missionary. Mm. Uh, An independent missionary is somebody who is not under any kind of mission organization or any kind of denominational headquarters. So as you know, with the Christian church, it's a congregational movement, and the each church is independent, and there is no there is no hierarchy. And so the idea of an independent mission movement was that the missionary would go to the churches and raise his own support. He he might choose in some instances to have his own board of advisors. Cunningham, in fact, had a board of advisors, and it may have been the president of Johnson, I've kind of forgotten who it was, was on his board. Cunningham wrote a book, and this man, I've, I've forgotten who, the, his name, but he wrote the foreword to the book, and he said, yeah, Cunningham asked me to be on his missionary board, and he said, he told me my, my role is that when I need advice, I will ask you, and he said he never asked me. <laughs> that's funny (laughs) so Cunningham began a huge work in Japan the Yotsuya mission organization he started a lot of churches and it became a major work and out of that work there was a, a Bible college and actually a couple of Bible colleges were started and churches all around Tokyo 
I began a college in Tokyo, a little Bible college that we were connected to Milligan College. Okay. We used the property of the Otsuya Mission, and the Otsuya Mission actually backed the Bible college that we started there. So that that history, he was key, and then actually face father Mark Maxey was also his father had been a church planter in the United States. I don't know if you're familiar with that history, but you know this was during the period in which the disciples and uh, the, there was beginning to be a split in the uh, restoration movement. And so one of the issues that he faced was that the disciples of Christ, which, you know, it wasn't clear yet who was who in this. They uh, came in very often and took over the churches. You know, they would literally take over the property and take over ownership and then take over leadership. Hmm. So that history is kind of important in understanding that Faith's father also then was very much in support of an independent, direct support mission. And so all of his life, he wrote on this. He, in fact, wrote kind of the definitive work on the Philippine missions mm. and, defend, you know, showing, okay, here's the history of the the mission organizations, and here is the, the historical reason that an, an independent missionary movement is a necessity. So, I mean, ultimately, the, the split between the disciples of Christ and the independent Christian churches had to do with missions and mission organizations. Today, that's kind of, you know, you just don't hear that history or the rationale behind it. But Japan uh, and several countries in Asia, Taiwan, the Philippines, they've primarily been uh, independent, direct support missionaries from the Christian churches that have gone there. And so her father defended that, supported that, wrote on that. He wrote a column for many years kind of along that line. So, yes, he was definitely not part of a mission organization, nor were any missionaries in Japan connected with the Christian church until so recently. Supported by individual churches. Right. So he went when he came home on furlough, mm -hmm. he would travel the United States and visit, and visit those churches. Visit those churches and that makes sense. So Cunningham, he began the work in Japan in the 30s. And then Mark Maxey, did he come um shortly after this or about the same? No, he he was a chaplain in World War II. Okay. And he was first stationed in the Philippines and, in fact, was planning to return to the Philippines as a missionary. But then they transferred him to Japan. And when he was in Japan, he received a letter from uh, actually a former chaplain who, uh, and then a church or a group of people that had begun to meet in a little town called Kanoya in Kagoshima. They wanted him to come to Kanoya. And so he did, and he he was there for 60 years, and he's buried there. Okay. What do you think his strategies and then your and faith's strategies and methods were for evangelism? You know, at the end of World War II, uh, a very different kind of strategy worked 
and that's what he put into effect. That is that at the end of the war, this was the time of huge growth among Christians, and a lot of people were attracted to Christianity. You know, you could put up a tent and have a revival. You'd fill up the the tent, people become Christians, and out of that, then churches were formed. So they did a lot of mass evangelism. You know, they actually had a sound truck that they would go around. They did tent evangelism. So it was very much like the old revivalism that you had in the United States, maybe when I was a child, probably not when you were a child. but Yeah, <laughs> just a little different. <laughs> but that all shifted in Japan. That, that what worked in the immediate post-war period, in fact, that did work, and there was a huge influx of Christians into the churches during this time. And that is the period in which really there was major growth and then the preachers that would eventually take over those churches, you know, most of the preachers even now are from that generation. And so that worked. Now, what worked after that is a little bit unclear. Mm-hmm. You know, we were trying to, one of the things that Mark did and that we continued to do was to have English Bible classes. A mm-hmm. lot of Japanese are attracted to oh, we want to learn English. And he actually wrote a lot of books and sold them. He he ran a bookstore in Japan, and so he sold his, his materials, his evangelistic materials, went out to missionaries all over Japan. So a lot of people were using this strategy. Mm. So by the time we got there, there had set in a kind of resistance to Christianity that endures. It's still, Japan is one of the most resistant cultures. I I think I could put it even stronger. I'll I'll state this and then I'll explain it. I think it is the most resistant culture to Christianity that there is. Arab countries or even like a country like Saudi Arabia, Hmm. 8% of the population in Saudi Arabia is Christian. That's a bit of a kind of a deceptive because a lot of that population are not Saudi citizens. They may be domestic workers or people from other countries, but less than 1%. And I think that statistic has just remained in Japan of Christians, uh, uh, of the population of Christian. That doesn't mean that Christianity has had a huge impact in Japan in a lot of socially, you know, politically, culturally but in most cultures you re- when you reach out to people you reach out to the poor and what happened in Japan due to the Meiji restoration is a lot of the cultural elites became Christian mm. so the the you know the when the samurai could no longer be samurai a large portion of that population became Christian so as to why Japan is resistant that's another story but it has continued to be resistant there are methodologies and, and ways of working that may be more effective. There are no big churches. You know, a big church in Japan may be 50 people. Uh, most churches are probably 10 or 20 people. Okay. What was your approach for developing leaders? You know, we started a Bible college and we're mm-hmm. trying to train leaders. That, that's, a, <laughs> that's the big question right now. That in fact, I'm still, even though I'm here in the States, that's the 
I'm still working with the Japanese missionaries and Japanese preachers. I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't, this would not be my approach if it weren't that they were asking for this. That is, there is a crisis of leadership in Japan. Mm. The school that I started, it was using English and appealing to people to finish their education in the United States uh, as a kind of entree into it. There is a Osaka Bible Seminary has been there since the 1930s, I think. They just have just a few students and have not replaced the aging leadership. And so this this is the big question, you know, how do you train up new leadership? There's so few young people or even people that, you know, a lot actually one of the things that is being done is that people that have retired and want to go in, you know, can af- have a second career or can afford to do it. Out of that population, we've gained several preachers. Mm-hmm. But the Japanese, I'm saying, Japanese preachers, Japanese church leadership have, the, in addition, it's, it's not that this is the only thing they're doing, the, in addition to what they're already doing, they're trying to bring over leadership again from the United States and uh, develop a, another, you know, a leadership among uh, American missionaries that might come over and be willing to, to work and take over the leadership of these churches. So I worked with young people there at the school and then also at the church. We eventually, I worked to displace myself as the preacher of the church, and we put in a young guy to, to do it. But yeah, that's the, the big question. I mean, we're, there's a lot of effort being put into developing leadership, uh, but right at this moment, it's not clear how that's going to work. Okay. What were some of your personal victories and struggles during this time? A lot of struggles. (laughs) (laughs) We were doing a couple of things. So we worked with this church in Suchiota, and church, I think we got it back. They were debating at certain points whether to close the door. Mm -hmm. And so we came and encouraged them to, to, you know, they had a building, and because of our work there, that church is still there. The church has not been able to maintain its own they they have to rotate ministers in we started a school in 1989 in tokyo it was kind of an experimental thing it was kind of an unusual thing because as you know in japan college education it's very hard to enter into college a lot of students were interested in coming to the united states in 1990 about 40 different american institutions including Temple University and all, all sorts of universities from the United States, from uh, Great Britain. They set up campuses in Japan. And so I worked for a couple of years for Temple University in Tokyo and decided to try a, uh, to set up a Christian institution that would do the same thing. And so actually it was in 1989 that we started American Christian College in Tokyo on that Yotsuya mission property. What was it? It was American Christian College? American Christian College. Yeah, I, that's not a great name, but my thought behind the name was that people would understand, okay, it's uh, it's an English-speaking school with the idea that you enter and then complete your education at a 
Bible college or Christian college in the United States. And so we formed a partnership with Milligan University, I guess it is uh, now, in Tennessee. Their academic dean sat on our board. He came over. But anyway, we set up the school with the idea of sending students to Milligan, but we sent students to other colleges too. It's about in 1990, we had about 16 students. We, we did that, and out of that, several preachers were educated. Actually, one of the young guys that started at American Christian College, he went to Lincoln. He, he went to Osaka Bible Seminary, and then he went to Lincoln Christian Seminary. And he's now the preacher at uh, Major Odai uh, Christian Church. I don't know how to spell any of them. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> it was partially a success. So working with the church, working with the college. And then in the meanwhile, I was also teaching English Bible classes and faith was teaching children's classes. And so we did a lot of things, activities in that way to draw people in. What were your family dynamics during this time, having three young children overseas? In Japan, that's always a big issue because of the language barrier. Faith, who grew up in southern Japan, her parents sent her to boarding school up in Kyoto to Canadian Academy. And all of her brothers and sisters went to boarding school. That can be rough, you know. So she was in, actually, she was in fifth grade. She went to a local, there was a Mennonite school for a while in Kagoshima. And then she went to, I think she was eighth grade when she went to Canadian Academy. So did uh, she grow up there from birth? She and- was born in Kentucky, but went to Kanoya when she, you know, her parents were on furlough. Mm-hmm. Her father went there in 1950. She was born in 1955 while they were in furlough, mm-hmm. but, but grew up in Kanoya and just came home every five years or so. Okay. But our family, we were north of Tokyo. We First of all, we couldn't afford boarding school. Hmm. This is the underside of being self-supporting. But we actually were involved in starting a school. One of our children attended. It was an English school. In fact, that school is still there. It became a part of the United World, UWC, United World College. Uh, it's a high school, but it's it's still there. Two of our our daughters went to a local Japanese school. Our oldest daughter finished through a correspondence course through Nebraska University. It's one of the oldest correspondence courses. We also did homeschooling. The schooling was the big thing. That was the big problem. So if we did a combination of homeschooling, sent them to local Japanese school, or our son went to this elementary school that was... uh, the uh, foreign children there in scuba. Our oldest daughter then finished school there and went to uh, Pepperdine University. In the beginning, you know, I, I when I started American Christian College, that was my main thing. I taught a little bit at a, I taught part-time at a scuba university. As our enrollment decreased at the American Christian College, I had to pick up more and more. So I ended up teaching at a lot of various universities. And teaching scientists, groups of researchers. You taught them English? I was teaching them English. And, you know, if you're a researcher, you you have to publish. You have to be able to present and publish in English. Wow. 
And so most of them actually were quite good in English. We had helped them with conversational English, but then also helped them with writing. We did a lot of editing, you know, of papers, scientific papers, which is nearly impossible. <laughs> if you don't know what in the world they're talking about. The school that I began, I taught at Make a the high junior high high school. I taught there for a couple of years before we started uh, American. So then I taught at Temple University full-time, and then mm -hmm. I started American Christian College. But the dynamic was we were very busy. Yes, it sounds like it. <laughs> I remember you telling a story about sitting on the train for hours, like one way was an hour or more. I would begin to commute. So Temple University was in Tokyo, and then the school that I started was in Tokyo. Actually, it was just one stop from uh, Shinjuku Station, which is the busiest train station in the world. Wow. And so it was a two-hour, it was two hours total Okay. to drive to the train station, take the train, take another train. So I was commuting about four hours a day. That's a lot. I think my five-minute commute is too long some days. <laughs> So that kind of wore me down, you know. I got tired of commuting. How did you contextualize the gospel for the cultural elite in Japan? So that was the huge thing, as you probably know, that when I went to Japan, I was probably a typical, you know, what do you call it, evangelical or whatever it is, that my view of the atonement, my view of what Christianity is about, it all shifted up largely because of being in the Japanese context. And that context, you know, the role of guilt and shame are very different in Japan. We've kind of been oriented in the United States, our atonement theory, but the, just the, the way that Christianity functions. We see it as addressing a problem in regard to the law were guilty of transgression and that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin, that then saves us from hell. I don't know that I bought all of that, <laughs> but that makes no sense. That is already floats free of any context. Mm -hmm. That may work in an American context. I'm not really sure it works in an American context, but at least that's what we're kind of used to here. What it does not do is address people's real lived problems. It doesn't, you know, people are suffering, people are hurting, people are experiencing all kinds of problems. And I'm afraid that the gospel, as we often present it, doesn't address that. And so that's what occurred to me. And one of the, the key differences that's obvious in Japan is that the role of guilt uh, that we have in the United States, that it's actually more of a shame-based culture. Now, this is already, I think, I, I've come to believe that every culture is actually shame-based, just that we, we don't manipulate it and it's not so open here. And then you go back and read the Bible in terms of a culture like Japan in which it's group-oriented. You know, that's the idea of shame, is that it's in the eyes of other people. It's to be part of the group, to fall out of the group is 
you know, or to lose face. Uh, I think that's really the context. This it's a uh, an or we might call it an Oriental context, but of course the Bible itself is Oriental in that sense. It is a shamed based foundation that I think is there in Genesis and it's there in the New Testament. You know, to say that oh we we contextualize the gospel that doesn't quite get it because i think that my understanding of the gospel itself was shifted it's not that i was adjusting to japan alone it's that i began to understand that uh, there is a, a a kind of limited understanding especially in a protestant notion of you know imputed righteousness a kind of legal theory a kind of nominalistic understanding i think it's removed from people suffering pain and mm -hmm. and need and so that that was the big shift is that i began to see the gospel as directly addressing people's need for healing their need for being incorporated into a group that is you know, a, a Japanese group can be very cruel. Mm. I think that's part of why there's high. There, it's one of the highest suicide rates in the world. One of the highest suicide rates among junior high students, by the way, and mm. among uh, just in, uh, across the board. So Japan can be a kind of cruel culture, and people are suffering. And the gospel can address them, that people can learn about the love of Jesus and they can realize that there is an unconditional love, that they can be part of the body of Christ, you know, that it's so I think all of that is good news. To begin to say to say that I that I contextualized, that word rubs me the wrong way a little bit. Not completely. I mean we there's a sense in which, yeah, we have to say things, you know, in a certain way. But in other words, when I think of being a missionary, it's almost like I went to Japan and there I came to understand who Christ really was. I think apart from being on mission, apart from that fulfillment of the gospel, I think it's precisely there that we ourselves come to apprehend and understand what that is. And that was certainly true to me. So I got contextualized. <laughs> it's like I was a part of all of that for so long. And then moving to like the Anglican church. And then I have like a lot of history about the Episcopal church and the Anglican church worldwide. But then I also have like, I know a lot about the restoration movement and I understand it. I feel like in some way that's like the first church movement i learned about or the first churches i was really a part of and the college that i went to so i still love it a lot and respect i think the history especially i think it's interesting what mark maxi did with not wanting to be a part of the missionary organizations and i don't remember learning the history of the split over missions organizations but that makes a lot of sense why it would have caused the split and then why people would not have wanted to be a part of ascending organization 
I mean, it became a very controlling thing. So he he did what these organizations often do not allow you to do. He went, he stayed in one place, he, he spent his life there, he's buried there. Yeah. And that was his goal. Rather than someone in a foreign place who has no notion of what the culture looks like or what the local situation looks like dictating to you, you know, and this may work or not work, you know, depending on the group, but it just became a destructive influence in the Christian churches because the particular organization, you know, and I'm sure there are better ones than this, they're taking a huge part. There are people making their living in the States off of these organizations, taking a percentage to be part of a hierarchy that is not essential to the work. It's not that it's all bad or that, that there's only one alternative. But to not know that history mm-hmm. and be and to be a missionary professor in the Christian churches, it, there's a, that's a kind of a gap, a huge misunderstanding. And of course, what has happened in the interim? We now, in the independent churches, we now also have a lot of various mission organizations. And in fact, they're present in Japan now, too. Uh, mm. And that's just true across the board. So the idea of an independent missionary movement is kind of gone by the wayside to, to a large degree. I think that needs to be an option for people. You know. Do you ever see yourself going back to Japan? Katie, I'm so near death. You are not. <laughs> <laughs> I am working with this group, and so I'm, it may be that I will have to go back and forth to, you know, we're training interns to go over. So I, it may be in that capacity that I would go over. But I don't think I'll go back. To, won't go back to live, I don't think. I won't say never, but at this point, it does not look that way. But I, I'm curious about what it is, what is, what's the point here? I've always been very interested in missions. Mm -hmm. And now in the Episcopal Church, I've done some research and talked with people about how we do missions, which is a little bit different than like a missions organization or just an independent mission, Mm -hmm. because we have dioceses all over the world. And so if I wanted to go work somewhere else, I would really need to be ordained. And then I could go and work in another diocese to help support a church there, which I don't think is in my future. I'm more so just learning, I guess, about different cultures, I suppose, and learning about how Christianity has spread. And I'm using a lot of the things that I'm learning in classes just to apply to my ministry here, because Galveston's very diverse. We, ha- I feel like there's a mission here just around me. Sure. But, well, and- the reason I asked, that, are you familiar with Donald McGavern? Name sounds really, the last name sounds very familiar. So this is probably just for your own benefit. Again, this is a movement and philosophy that has come to define the Christian church, but I think it's actually come to define a good deal of American Christianity. And Donald McGavern was a restoration movement missionary in India. Okay. And so I'm setting the context here that I think your class 
and the way that you know our thinking has been shaped by a particular understanding. Donald McGavern is the one who developed what is called the church growth movement. And so today in the United States, the way that you're considered successful as a preacher or minister is size of your church, the number of people. This philosophy or this understanding is a direct result of Donald McGavern's understanding about the way that missions should work. That is that in India was a difficult field, and he began to say, well, the way that, you know, what we're doing is trying to grow, and by grow, he meant numerically, the church. There's all sorts of strategies that will enable us to do this. And so he began to look at the way you grow a church very similar to what the way that you might grow a business. There are certain models and certain targets and certain understandings that we need to put into place to be successful. I really dislike that. <laughs> and Donald McGavern goes to Fuller and there, you know, the Church Growth Institute at Fuller Seminary, and it has become the predominant understanding of church and of missions in, you know, not just Christian churches, but across the board. So when we, you know, we want to do missions, think about a country like Japan, where what's our success rate? Well, how do you judge success? How many did you baptize? How big are the churches? Well, in fact, it doesn't seem like that Japan merits missionaries because the success rate is so low, and if we're determining success numerically, in fact, I think we just need to write that field off entirely. We did a whole unit on making sure, like, you go to a place that is ready to hear. There's some terminology. I read Donald McGravin's book, Understanding Church Growth, is where I know the name from. Oh, you probably understand it better than I do. Then. I don't think so. <laughs> no, but we learned about like the 90-20, I probably messed that up, window in the world and that sort of thing. And then looking at where Christianity can be received at a certain time and planting and sowing into cultures that are ready to receive that. But I completely agree with you that it makes the church into a business where you're only looking at numbers and not how it's impacting people's lives personally in a relationship manner. And I think that's much more important when you look at relationships and how the gospel, especially what you were saying about not necessarily contextualizing the gospel, but how it has changed you and having the gospel in that context really shaped you and gave you a deeper understanding of Christ's work on the cross. And I don't yeah. I don't mean to be just totally dismissive, but I think that what has taken place in our institutions, in our churches, almost this idea of success has become our theology. Mm -hmm. In Japan now, many mainline churches have pulled their missionaries out of Japan because it's not successful. It is not a place that you would want to invest because the return is so small. 
if we're thinking in terms of a kind of capitalistic notion. You know, what criteria do we want to use? Probably that should not be our singular criteria as to where we go, what we do, and how we do it. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think that has become a, a kind of shaper behind missions and mission strategy, but just church growth and the way we do church in general. I agree. Thank you so much. I appreciate... No, I really appreciate you sharing more about your experience and more about the history. That was a lot of fun. I'm glad glad we did it, and good luck with your program, Katie. Thank you. I'm excited that I was able to visit with you. Have a good afternoon. All right, Katie. Good talking. Thank you. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.